0: Hey guys and gals, Cable here, and this week's podcast is brought to you by the place that you need to be hanging out. Of course, I'm talking about the new Go Wild app. It's a social media platform for hunters and anglers, created by hunters and anglers, that's right. No negativity, you're not going to find anti-hunters, anti-Second Amendment, anti-American people on Go Wild, just folks like you and I, who are passionate about our way of life and the great outdoors. And Did I mention it's free, by the way? Yep. Yeah. So download Go Wild on your smartphone and join in the conversation. It's a great place to not only share trophy photos, but ask questions related to hunting and fishing. The Go Wild community is always happy to help out a fellow outdoorsman or woman. Uh, Plus you can share recipes, log time, listening to your favorite podcast. And and Go Wild usually has some kind of kick-ass giveaway that they're doing as well. Check it out. It's the Go Wild app and I will see you over there.
1: Good morning, good morning,
0: good morning, Cable Smith, welcome everybody to the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. It is great to be here talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors and all that implies with you fine folks today. Uh, Thank you so much for making time for me as we have got a great show lined up for you and i tell you what man it is this might be the best weekend of the year we've got dove season opening up we've got uh early season archery elk antelope mule deer i've seen people already taking uh all these kinds of big game animals out west and hunting season is officially here it doesn't get any better this is what we live for all year and uh i'm excited i tell you what I'm also excited about today's broadcast. It's going to be a good one as we've got uh, quite a few things to get into. So you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old thermos because we are ready to rock and roll. And off the top, we'll be joined by our friend Tom Mormon. He is Ducks Unlimited's chief scientist. Uh, The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service just released their waterfowl survey report They do it every summer, and I tell you what, numbers were not good (laughs) compared to where we've been at over the last few years, and that's interesting uh, to me anyway. So, Tom will be here, and there's a couple ducks that I really depend on, like the gadwall. Uh, I know some people turn their nose up at gadwall. I never do. Great puddle duck. They decoy well, and if they're in the area, chances are you're going to have a good shot at killing them. Uh, So... They were down 31%, pintails down 18%, and we can't figure out these damn pintails, man. Uh, They've been much maligned for the better part of three decades. What's going on with their numbers? They continue to slide, and they did it again this year. So we'll pick Tom's brain on those bull sprigs that every hunter loves to put in their bag. I mean, truly a trophy bird, Uh, but one with some interesting habits that might be causing them to continue their population decline. Then uh, we will visit with Senator Ted Cruz, Texas Senator, uh, who will make his return to the show. Senator Cruz recently sponsored the Saves Act, which affects exotic wildlife and uh, private property rights as well. So Senator Cruz will jump on with us to discuss that. I'll also get his take on Utah Senator Mike Lee's stance that Uh, All federally owned land should be transferred to state control. And then, of course, we will also hit on the upcoming election and his Democratic opposition, Robert Francis O'Rourke. Lots of red flags with Robert Francis. And uh, we'll discuss a few of those coming up in just a bit. Man, I'm starting to see a lot of these Beto, that's uh, what his nickname is, these Beto signs pop up all over uh, the Metroplex and I can't figure out why, uh, because the dude is about as un American as it gets, in my opinion. Uh, then, at the bottom of the hour, we will talk some habitat improvement, specifically with your whitetail herd in mind. Uh, we've all been, you know, under the impression that you need to do your prescribed burns at a certain time of the year, usually in the non growing season. So, Right before the spring green-up, you know, those late winter months. Uh, But outdoor writer and wildlife consultant Will Mosley of the Noble Research Institute has a different take on that as far as growing season burns and how they can actually increase the crude protein level in your native browse. So interesting stuff coming up with Will. He's actually got stats to back this up, and we will discuss that at the bottom of the hour. Uh, that's what's on the docket for today. It's going to be a good one, I guarantee you that. Uh, I'm certainly looking forward to it. Hope y'all are as well. A uh, couple other things. Don't forget our August September. Well, it's September now, but uh, our August September photo contest is going on. We're offering up an all seasons feeders fire pit slash barbecue grill it's a lone star outdoors show edition so a, a very special edition i think there's about four or five of these in existence and uh, anyway we've got one to give away to our august september winner so email your best hunting fishing outdoor photo to lone star outdoors show at gmail.com better yet post it on our facebook page wall or you can tag me on instagram use the lsos photo contest hashtag and we will get you entered And then all of our photo contest winners from 2018 will square off at the end of the year for a chance to win our grand prize hunt package. Uh, One of y'all will get to hunt trophy access deer or black buck with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. What else? Uh, Quick giveaway. I've got some cool stuff here from Texas Trophy Hunters, including a Show Your Skull t-shirt, a Texas Trophy Hunters cap, and ttha sticker as well to enter to win today's prize pack simply email the word whitetail that's whitetail to Star outdoors show at gmail.com and we'll get you entered to win i'll even throw in a lone star beer camo cap as well so be sure to throw your hat in the ring for a chance to win that prize pack uh let's do this let's take a quick break when we come back we're talking all things waterfowl with Ducks Unlimited's chief scientist Tom Warbin. you are listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show.
2: Make no mistake, and your nerves are never shaking. You should taste her layer You Say that's what I like about sour.
0: Cable here for isocialboost.com, a tool that many outdoor enthusiasts are using to grow their Instagram audiences. And if you're growing your Instagram audience, you're growing your brand. I recently let isocialboost.com take over a new page I created, and the growth has been incredible. ISocial Boost can help you expand your audience to heights you never imagined. Plus, you'll save 80%, that's right, 80% off your first week if you use my promo code LONESTAR. That's Lone Star at isocialboost.com. These are real followers who engage on a regular basis. Check it out, isocialboost.com.
1: Have you had the frustration of trying to mount your game camera to a T-Post with zip ties or bailing wire, but the first time you check it, find it pointing at the ground? I have. My name is Art Creep with Gunny Art Products. I'm the inventor of t the T-Post game camera mount. T-Mate is a rugged steel bracket. Just attach your camera to it, slip it over a T-Post, and latch it in place teammate will end your zip tie and bailing wire frustration. Order yours today at tpostmount.com. That's tpostmount.com.
0: Visit bobcatofdallas.com or call 469-586-0000.
3: Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek
0: Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's
4: cinnamoncreekranch.com. I got heartaches
1: in my pocket.
0: White Yokel, by request, thousand miles from nowhere, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I do appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well, our longtime presenting sponsors. We've certainly got some interesting stuff to get into here uh, with Ducks Unlimited's chief biologist, Tom Mormon. But before we do that, this segment of the show... Is brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I'd like to invite you to get plugged in with this great group of folks who are passionate about hunter's rights, education, and conservation. To do so, head over to biggame.org and check us out. We'd love to have you. Uh, All right. Well, let's go ahead and bring on our first guest today. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service released their waterfowl survey report uh, about a week ago now and uh didn't look so great to be honest with you. And so joining us now to give us his thoughts on to why we've seen a declining trend in waterfowl numbers here in two thousand eighteen. It's my pleasure to welcome Ducks Unlimited's Tom Mormon back to the show.
2: Thanks, Cable. It's great to be here again. Uh, seems like we just talked last year on this subject. Time applies. <laughs> yes,
3: it sure does. It sure does. And I always love checking in with you once the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service releases their um, waterfowl population survey. I think it's something that every duck hunter is is tuned into, and and when the results come out, you know, there's sometimes it's you know high fives, hey, it's going to be a great season. Sometimes it's like, oh man, what happened? Uh, and that was kind of my reaction this year. Um, just across the board, things weren't as good as they were in previous years. Uh, everybody except my buddy, Mr. Wigeon, um everyone else was down, like their uh, their trend was, was going the wrong direction. Um, so that was nice for the widgeon to be up 2%, but across the board, everyone else kind of struggling. So first off, what in the world happened?
2: Well, um, I think a little context is needed on that. As you sit back and look at those numbers, you know, your initial reaction, if you just look at the percentages, yeah, everybody's down. Mm-hmm. But the report itself is a little bit more nuanced than that, and so when you dig into it a little deeper, you'll see that even though those numbers from last year, they're down a bit, they're not statistically significantly down, which means really what we're looking at is a population that's pretty similar to last year. Uh, the same is actually true for pond counts. Mm-hmm. When I looked at that, um, yeah, they're down a bit, uh, a little bit drier, but... Statistically, or or otherwise, they're just about the same. And so, I think what we're kind of looking at is a year that is generally going to be, in terms of waterfowl production, probably about like last year, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit less production. But you know, I was up on the prairies, I guess, a couple of times this year, and get a general sense that things are a little bit drier up there. And depending on where you are, the other thing I guess I can tell you is it's real variable across that giant landscape. Mm-hmm. And so you can be in some places that look just terrible. And then I was in some other places, you know, some places in Alberta this spring that were just fabulous. And so I think we're going to be okay. You know, I, I wouldn't take the negative numbers and and sell all my decoys and stop feeding <laughs> my dog, right?
3: <clears throat> well, no, you'd have you- obviously we don't recommend that um and it, interestingly enough though we've lost like over a million duck hunters in the last 30 years um and you know the reports i read is, is mostly it's just about access as it's becoming harder and harder to find places to hunt and duck hunters will tell you well no there's not less duck hunters because i go to the lake and there's six boats already at the ramp you know ahead of me and i think that goes back to access there's just uh, there's less hunters but there's less places to hunt But certainly, we can't afford to lose any more hunters. So, back to these numbers, not doom and gloom because when you look at the long term average, they're still, I mean, with the exception of the pintail and uh, scop, all of these species are are still trending upwards, high above their long term average.
2: Yeah, waterfowl populations continentally are actually in great shape. And they're, like I said, they're really similar to last year, and while they're not at their, you know, all-time high peaks like they were just a couple, three, four years ago, they're still really, really great shape compared to, you know, those of us that have been hunting a while, myself included, remember, say, the late 80s when, you know, we were looking at way, way less than we had now, and seasons were 30 days and bird limits were three. We're not anywhere near that time frame at this point. And so things are good. Uh, hunters should be excited. And, you know, I guess for those of us who hunt on the southern end of things, you know, we need another winter, a strong one, kind of like we had, or at least some of us had last year. I understand you get over towards Texas way and things are a little different winter-wise. But man, we You had, mean
3: like so, 60 degrees, is that winter?
2: <laughs> that's what you guys had. Although, I tell you, over here where I hunt in Mississippi, we had, I don't know, two solid weeks of frozen, locked up, Ice that you could, you know, walk on. Mm-hmm. It was really thick, so we were cold, and we had birds because of that, and it was really good shooting. But uh you know, yeah, duck hunters know, man, we got to have winter to push them. So
3: absolutely. Cool. Well, going back to these numbers, and I just want to hit on a couple different species, and and you know, and why I think it, I keep saying when I looked at it, it was like, oh man, that kind of sucks, and and the reason why is cuz mountains are down 12%, greenwing teal down 16%, blue wingers 18, redheads down 10, pintail 18. And here's the one that really stood out to me, gadwalls down 31%. Uh, gadwalls have rescued more than a handful of hunts for me, for me personally. So what the hell gadwalls why why, why are they struggling? I need these gadwalls.
2: Yeah, uh, well First thing hunters should know, gadwall populations are still doing fine. They're still way above long-term average. But a year-over-year basis definitely declined um, in terms of the number of birds that were counted. And the explanation for that looks to me to be that the province of Saskatchewan and then parts of the eastern Dakotas, Mm -hmm. two areas that are really important to gadwalls, mallards, pintails, blue-winged teal especially, are significantly drier this year. And so what you would expect when that happens is that those species won't settle there. They won't stop, right? They're just gonna fly somewhere else and look for better conditions. So the survey reflects that. and what we would expect from that is maybe some a bit of reduced production production from those birds, but um, again, their long-term populations remain pretty high. and so, it's going to be a interesting year. Uh, hunters might notice a little bit of difference, but if we get a really great winter, you might not notice any difference. Right on. year. Okay.
3: Well, yeah, and, and I know that these uh, the surveys, it's done in, you know, the same quadrants year after year after year, and you mentioned that if there's no water in one of them, these birds are just going to move on to the next place, and maybe that's not surveyed quite as uh, rigidly as as the, the one that we, you would normally find these birds nesting in.
2: Yeah, I can give you a you know first hand example of that this year. Lots of times blue winged teal, they're they're especially good at this. When they hit say South Dakota or North Dakota, if there's water, a big segment of the population drops out and they'll breed there. And then so the survey says, Oh man, there's a ton of blue winged teal in the Dakotas this year. Or then, you know, this year we get a year where it's really kind of dry, in that part of the Dakotas and Saskatchewan, and so where did blue wings end up? I happened to be in Alberta, uh, kind of the north-central part of the province, and you would have thought the whole world was made of blue wing teal. Hmm. I think they overflew a lot of that country into Alberta. Then the question is, how successful were they in nesting in that part of the the province of Alberta? And so, you know, like I said, the whole thing gets kind of nuanced. These birds are really high, pretty, actually they're really well adapted to these kind of annual changes. They're long-lived, right? So if they get a dry year, they can forego breeding if they have to. They can move around, and if one part of the prairies is wet and another is not, they're pretty good at finding the wet spots, So you just never really know, and the beauty of the survey is that it's been running now since the late 50s, and so that long-term perspective really comes into play here, Hmm. Uh, and you start to see things, you can start to get a little better sense of what's going on there.
3: Yeah, it's nice to have that historical data to look back upon and and still walk away from this survey knowing that, hey, uh, yeah, numbers were down, but uh, across the board, Everything other than pintail are still up above their long-term average, so that's good news.
2: Yeah, um, everything is actually above long-term average except pintail and scop. And this year, a handful of species did take a dip. Uh, Mallards, gadwalls, blue wings, and pintails in particular, some species that are important to hunters. And, you know, it was drier, especially Saskatchewan. I think that's probably what we're seeing here is a reflection of pretty rough conditions in in that part of the prairies, which is really the core, you know, one of the most important provinces for waterfowl production. Mm -hmm. So, again, um, I wouldn't panic. You know, populations overall are healthy, a bit lower than last year, and, you know, seasons, again, hunter success is going to be driven probably a lot more by Weather conditions than the drop in production this year.
0: All right, let's do this. Let's table this conversation, come back, and get into the pintail. We've seen this bird historically struggle more so than any other species in North America in the past uh, two decades or so. Not sure why that is. I know you've got uh, some theories on that, Tom, and we will get into that next. This segment of the show, by the way, was brought to you by Pulsar Night Vision and Thermal Imaging Technology. Check out the Pulsar Helion. If you're hunting the backcountry or if you're just heading to your whitetail stand under the cover of darkness, as long as your state deems it legal, it's an invaluable tool. It's the Pulsar Helion Monocular, and you can find it at PulsarNV.com. Plus, save 20% off your order when you use my promo code LONESTAR. That's 20% off any Pulsar Night Vision or Thermal Optic at PulsarNV.com We'll be right back with more from Ducks Unlimited Chief Scientist Tom Mormon. What's up with those bull sprigs we discuss next on Star Huckoo Show. High County, Illinois, and the surrounding area is hallowed ground for whitetail hunters. And with 21 years experience, Golden Triangle Whitetails is the oldest outfitter in the state. Spread out over 14,000 acres, they have 350 acres of food plots, 500 tree stands, and over 80 box blinds. The guides take pride in having hunters harvest giant Midwest bucks. Golden Triangle Whitetail hunts the Illinois archery, shotgun, and muzzleloader season. They have a full-time chef and excellent lodging. Book your whitetail hunt of a lifetime by going to www.goldentrianglewhitetail.com today. All right, waterfowl junkies, the finisher is the quick and humane way to dispatch a duck or goose. It's uh, you know, it's unsettling when you've wrung that bird's neck, you throw it in the pile, and ten minutes later he's laying there flopping. Uh, uh-uh. we don't want that. That's not ethical. And so the finisher alleviates that. You stick the finisher in the back of the bird's skull at an upward angle. Give it a little twist. Boom dead instantly never felt the thing the finisher is only 14 bucks it fits on any waterfowling lanyard and you can find it at adrenal-line.com hey guys cable here and i need to tell you about the go wild app if you've experienced any kind of hatred on social media from anti-hunters from tree huggers and the like then check out the growing go wild community it's free it's available for both iphones and android it's a great place to trade hunting and fishing stories recipes and share some of those bragging board moments of your outdoor successes. Check it out, it's the Go Wild app, available for both iPhones and Androids. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution, the System Hog Trap Hey, hey, all you waterfowl junkies out there, Cable here for TX Duck Blinds, highly durable and highly mobile customized duck blinds built by duck hunters for duck hunters. Each blind is built from solid steel by professional welders and field tested before shipment. A duck season will come and go, but guess what? Your TX Duck Blind is built to last. Customize yours today by calling 817-965-1306. You can also find them at TexasDuckBlinds.com or check them out on Instagram and Facebook at TX Duck Blinds. I did everything that I could and went to the roost at night. I don't know where it started or where it might end.
2: And I was in danger of being skunked once again.
0: Dove, that is my good friend James Yates, a spoof there on the uh, Johnny Lee Classic, looking for love. Bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show, it is opening weekend, shotguns are ringing out all over Texas, all over uh, North America for that matter, I put up a post on Instagram last week, and it seems like most states open their Dove season on September 1st, so y'all be safe, shoot straight, most importantly, have fun, uh, that's what hunting at its core is Uh, is really all about for me. It's as much fun as you can have with your pants on. I'll tell you that. Uh, I'm Cable Smith, by the way. Thank you, guys and gals, for being here. And this segment of the presentation, proudly brought to you by Lone Star Beer, when you celebrate that full limit of Dove, you know what to do. Crack open an ice-cold Lone Star Beer. Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. All right, uh, well, we are still visiting with Ducks Unlimited's chief biologist, Tom Mormon, our longtime friend. We're discussing the recent waterfowl survey report released by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And across the board, bad news for ducks this year. Uh, Numbers are down just about for every species, save Wigeon. And we discussed that uh, during the previous segment. Now we're going to get into one species that while all the other ones are still above their long-term average, uh, the pintail is not. And it hasn't been for some time. Last year, we saw a reduced bag limit uh, across all flyways, Tom, down to one bird uh, from two. And though this year, my understanding is the uh, limit is back up to two. So good news there, especially for those coastal guys who mostly shoot pintails and redheads. What is going on with these pintails? Why can't they seem to recover uh, like the other puddle duck species
2: yeah, that's that's a pretty interesting bird in a lot of ways, and so there's been a lot of research done on pintails, and, you know, historically, say, in from the mid-70s, let's just use that as our reference point, some hunters out there will remember a point system and pintails being a 10-point bird, and they were really abundant, and then they declined, starting, say, well, they declined in the drought of the late 80s, but then they never really seemed to recover. And the reason that appears to be is that there was a fundamental land use change, particularly in the core of their breeding habitat in Prairie Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, farmers up there used to do what was called summer fallow. And so they'd harvest a crop, and then they'd leave those fields, basically fallow, through the subsequent summer. And when they did that, it made really great pintail habitat. You know, it was basically it was just... You know, weeds and grassland that pintails really keyed in on did quite well in. Well, agriculture changed a bit, and now farmers basically crop annually up there. And so what happens is a whole bunch of real estate suddenly goes from pretty good pintail nesting habitat to spring-seeded grains, mm. and that means pintails, even if they try to nest in it, they're not going to be successful because they're likely to get their nest plowed under. mm mm-hmm. So that change happens. Let's just say in the late 80s, early 90s. Subsequent to that, we see a pretty stable population, but it's just a lot lower. Okay. Um, you know, it's operating in the two and a half to say, in a really great year, maybe approaching four million breeding birds. And that's kind of where we've stabilized with that bird. And the other thing about pintails, lots of people won't realize is they're really long-lived. And so their annual reproductive effort, they give it about one shot.
5: Hmm. If
2: they lose a nest, pintails are not real prone to renesting because they live long, and so they'll just forego a year and and take their chances again next year. Compa- contrast that with a mallard, who you know that species has <laughs> been known to renest up to four or five times in a single spring. They're just really different birds that probably a lot of folks don't realize. As a consequence of that, you know, they're less quick to recover in a, in a return of water. And when you change the habitat base fundamentally, you know, you get this, at least what we think happens here is we got a new sort of level, a new average, so to speak, mm, okay. a bit lower. And so that's a fundamental change in habitat that might be driving that. And Interesting.
3: So, I had not heard that, so. Uh, yeah, I appreciate the insight on that. Um, what about as far as affecting next season's pintail bag limit? These numbers that just came out, do they have any bearing on how many birds we will be allowed to harvest uh, in the 2019-2020 season?
2: Well, they seems do. like we're always operating a year in advance. Uh, in advance on that, we are now. Um, that's a relatively recent change. I'm thinking maybe a year or two ago, the, the Flyway consoles and the Fish and Wildlife Service just To give hunters a sense of predictability, they base their regulations on, so this year's regulations would basically be based on last year's waterfowl survey data. Mm -hmm. And that's just to give hunters, you know, they can lock in dates early and do all the things that we like to do. And so because of that, this year, next year's pintail, last year, let's start with last year. Last year things were pretty good. A little bit wetter, and they bumped pintail harvest to two birds. This year, um, I hadn't actually looked hard at that particular element of the report. It looks like pintail populations dropped back down a bit. Yeah, um, Well it's pretty black
3: and white. If the it's a it's a number, and if it's below X, then. Yep. The-
2: yeah, and I I don't know that number right off the top of my head. Um, it's, I'm sure it's out there. That's a it's called an adaptive harvest management strategy, and basically it's it's a complicated way and hard to convey to hunters. But it's what it does is seeks to maximize hunter opportunity while protecting the population. Mm-hmm. And so you get a year that's wetter, and we you know the, the model says okay you can take more pintails, And then, if it turns around and gets subtly drier or significantly drier, then the model turns around and says, Oh, this year only one pintail. And so that's, and we're right on, you know, we're riding right on the brink of that decision point. And so that's why you see this fluctuation of two birds one year, one bird the next year.
3: Let me ask you this uh, because we've just talked about how the pintail population fluctuates between, let's just say, two and a half and four million birds annually. In looking at this survey, there's only a million redheads on the continent, and it seems like I've seen a million just in an afternoon on the Texas coast. So, I mean,
4: probably
2: have.
3: <laughs> why can we hunt? Why can we take two redheads, uh, only one pintail? Is it just because their their flyway and their their habitat um, is not as widespread, or you've got less birds, yeah. why can
2: you take more of them? Well, that's, really that's a really great question. question, but. It is. It's a really interesting and great question, and a couple things about redheads. They're they're relatively less harvested species, and, you know, pintails are heavily harvested, particularly in the Central Flyway and the Pacific Flyway, mm-hmm. and increasingly in the Mississippi Flyway, and so harvest pressure is heavier on them. There are more hunters who traditionally will set up in places to kill puddle ducks in general. And so pintails are somewhat more vulnerable and hence the somewhat more restrictive regulations. Now, for years and years and years, redheads, I think they've been two almost forever. I can't remember if we bounced them to three or not. I don't remember if the service did that a few years ago or not. Uh, Maybe not. But that bird is pretty unique. Um, There are just a few places on the planet where you can consistently see redheads outside of migration and breeding areas. Chesapeake Bay system used to have a lot. It doesn't have as many now. Uh, There are a handful in the Big Bend area of Florida on seagrass beds. Hmm. Probably 80% of the population winters in Laguna Madre, the Texas Bay system. That you referenced. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and then there's a handful over on the Pacific Coast, and so they're just not as vulnerable to hunting pressure, and so you, know, you can, hunters can take consistently take two.
3: Okay.
2: And the population is way above its long-term average as well. They've been doing pretty well during this wet cycle. Right. Right.
3: Okay. Uh, last question I have for you, going back to another species, much like the gadwall that has saved many hunts for me and some hunters turn up their noses at ringnecks. I am not one of them. <laughs> if, I mean, Me if we've got mallards coming in, clearly we're going to pass on ringnecks. But at the end of the day, the dog just wants to go fetch a duck, and I just want to shoot a it. duck. Yep. So uh, why are ringnecks not a part of this survey?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, too. And to understand that, you kind of got to understand the ringneck as a, as a bird and its breeding distribution. It's a pretty fascinating bird. It mostly breeds in the boreal forest. It's not a prairie breeding species, typically. Mm-hmm. And it mostly breeds in the eastern half of the boreal. So the core of its population is really mostly in non-surveyed area. Uh, let's just say the boreal forest of Ontario East would comprise the core of its breeding range. There is an eastern survey um, done in sort of northeastern Canada that picks up ringnecks and has a a population trajectory and estimate for that part of Canada that's in the report. You have to dig kind of deep to find it, Mm. but it's in there somewhere. So, really, it's just a function of where they breed. What we do know about uh, ringnecks is that population, this really appears to be doing pretty well. Uh, it appears, actually, it might be expanding westward into the boreal region. Um, so, it's not in the survey because it's not a species they typically encounter or consistently counter encountered in the traditional survey area. When they started the eastern survey, I guess, uh, or maybe the early 90s, if memory serves, they pick up some of those birds, and they're tracking them in that part, you know, which is a relatively small part of their breeding range at this point. Hmm. Um, but the okay. upshot is that's why they're not in it, and you can find out what they're doing in a, kind of the far eastern part of the boreal if, you're, if you dig into the survey. Um, but the population of ringnecks overall is strong and healthy
3: come on down to texas ring next i'll I'll watch with open arms and a
0: hot shotgun barrel (laughs) fun bird to hunt
2: they're really fun birds to hunt now
0: no doubt well tom hey thanks so much for your time today certainly enjoyed it and you know historically from from where our duck numbers were back in the late 1800s early 1900s to where they are today i think it's our greatest conservation success story
2: yeah you know i guess what i would tell hunters and You know, this is something we always all have to keep in the back of our mind, is at the end of the day, regardless of what populations do from year to year, we all need to focus on sustaining that habitat where they're produced. And so to keep keep the potential to have these years that are really great, you know, when water returns and production is really great, we need to keep that level of productive capacity. And that's all about long-term conservation, uh, biaduct stamp, support DU, support your organization of choice. But at the end of the day, that's what we got to do. And in the meantime, get out there and enjoy these birds when they get here this fall.
0: Well, we will certainly do it. I know you will as well. Thanks again, Tom. Always a pleasure.
2: Thank you, Cable. I enjoyed it.
0: All right. Ducks Unlimited Chief Scientist Tom Mormon, And now you know everything you need to know about what's going on with our duck numbers. Uh, as we just recapped the recent U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service wildlife survey report. And uh, certainly interesting stuff on the pintail front. That is a duck that I am kind of obsessed with, if I have to be honest. (laughs) Probably my favorite duck to shoot. I just love that long neck and that sprig, just how graceful they fly. And of course, I like it when they splash in the decoys after the rapport of my shotgun as well. (laughs) But uh, anyway, I'd never heard that about the agricultural practice changes up in Alberta and uh, its effect on pintail nesting. And also the fact that they're more long-lived than other duck species. Just uh, truly a fascinating bird. Uh, That segment of the show proudly brought to you by Horizon Firearms. Uh, You guys, you all have seen my 7 mag. I'm pretty proud of it, as I should be. That thing is uh, a hell of a rifle. Totally customized for me by my friends over at Horizon Firearms. They'll spec out your caliber uh, any way you want it. You want fluting. I mean, you want a a carbon fiber barrel that heats up and changes colors while you shoot it. They do it all, and they do an amazing job. Check them out for your next rifle build. Go to HorizonFirearms.com. We will be right back with an old friend of the show, Texas Senator Ted Cruz makes his return to the show. We're going to discuss the Saves Act and what it means for both native and exotic games. And we'll do that next on the Lone Star Outdoors Show.
1: There's a burial ground beneath a cattle herd. Mr. Henry Ford's building me a Thunderbird. My Thunderbird. Have you had the frustration of trying to mount your game camera to a T-Post with zip ties or bailing wire, but the first time you check it, find it pointing at the ground? I have. My name is Art Greep with Gunny Art Products. I'm the inventor of t the T-Post game camera mount. t is a rugged steel bracket. Just attach your camera to it, slip it over a T-Post, and latch it in place. t will end your zip tie and bailing wire frustration. Order yours today at Tpostmount.com. That's t
4: or visit our website at www.biggame.org.
1: You must be fast asleep not thinking about me or you're already gone. Wake up, Becky. Becky, I'm almost home. Hello,
0: Cody Jinks. Wake up, Becky, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show powered by Dallas Safari Club, Cable Smith here with you today. Uh, Thank you for being here, and thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players as well. We are all set to visit with Texas Senator Ted Cruz, but before we get into the SAVES Act and its implications for exotic wildlife, specifically this segment of the presentation is proudly brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. I've got the Big gone at the Deer Lease, and here's why I love it. Because with a five-year-old son and twin daughters that are three, uh, you need a big place if you're actually going to try to sit in a blind and enjoy a hunt together. And so the Big it has got enough space for all of us to have a chair in there. I mean, it's got carpet, it's got cup holders, windows for archery and rifle hunters, It's the real deal, and it's the big chingone. You can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. All right, let's go ahead and bring on our next guest. He is a a longtime friend of the program and making his return this morning, Senator Ted Cruz. Thanks for being here.
4: Uh, It is great to be back with you, Cable. Thank you.
3: My pleasure. Uh, So let's get right down to it. I'd like to discuss a bill you've sponsored known as the SAVES Act. Uh, Give us a brief overview of the bill because yeah, my basic understanding is that it would uh, rewrite the Endangered Species Act to protect only species that are native and I honestly don't see a problem with that.
4: Well, Cable, that's right, uh, and, and this is designed to be a conservation bill. Uh, this would exempt non-native spe- species from the Endangered Species Act. What that would mean uh, is that American ranchers, uh, American zoos, would be better able uh, to breed non-native species and, and to expand the population, and this this would uh, benefit a lot of Texans, but it would also benefit uh, wildlife populations by I- enabling... Uh, breeders to, to, to breed and expand their populations.
3: Okay, and these could be any type of uh, exotic species. Um, and, you know, a couple of years ago, it was no secret, we had the, uh, the Three Amigos, the Dama Gazelle, the Scimitar Horned Oryx, and the Attics, which were in their crosshairs. I mean, nationally, people were upset because folks were hunting these animals in Texas. The only reason those species exist on the face of God's green earth today is because of the foresight of Texas ranch, ranchers and ranch owners who brought these animals to Texas for the sole purpose of hunting them because they were yep. extinct in their native Africa.
4: Well, cable, okay, well, that's right. I think that's a powerful example of how this bill would operate. Uh, you, you look at those those three species that that they had been exempt, and and as a result, you 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 had Texas ranches breeding them and growing the population. Then in 2012, uh, there was a court challenge in the D.C. Circuit and they were no longer treated as exempt and the consequence of that was that the population dropped uh as much as 60%. I oh, mean yeah. we saw we saw the population numbers plummeting. Now thankfully Congress acted in 2014 to reinstate the exemption and the the result is exactly what everyone knew it would be which is the population numbers soared as soon as they were exempted again, and, and so this would be uh, bringing those same benefits uh, to other other species whose populations are threatened worldwide. By exempting non-native species here here in the United States, you, you would create the ability for breeders really to grow those populations and even even save endangered species uh, and 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 bring them back.
3: Well, yeah, and I mean. <laughs> From just ranchers that I know and, you know, personally and, and what I saw, as far as the scimitar horned orcs went, I mean, you you could just go get one for basically free. Everyone just shot them because they're like, we're, we're not going to feed these animals, 450, 500 pound animals. Um, they're going to eat us out of house and home, you know, unless we have the ability to sell them. So literally, like you said, they dropped 60 percent, might even be more than that because everyone I know was just giving those hunts away.
4: I think that's exactly right. Uh, you know, another example uh, that you can look at is, is the consequence of the law being the way it is now. It is in order to, to breed across state lines, uh, you have to get a permit, a captive bred wildlife permit from the federal government. Mm-hmm. And and the problem with that is that those permits can be incredibly burdensome and it can take a lot of time and and – slow it down. So for example, the, the, the American Federation of Aviculture said I, if a collection manager in Missouri wants to bring in a new bloodline into their macaw collection from a collection up in Pennsylvania, current regulations are so onerous as to bring that plan to a full stop. So you end up having genetic islands where, where it would be better to, to, to breed, breed the population with, with more diversity, but but federal law stands in the way which ends up hurting the populations that, that that the entire purpose is is to preserve and help.
3: Right, right. And like you said, this is for non native species only. It's not like this is going to affect white tailed deer breeding and all right. of a sudden we're going to be, you know, running those things across state lines and big trailers. Uh, that is not what this is about. Um, would this allow trophy hunters and this is I don't know if this is part of this bill or not, but would it allow trophy hunters to bring their trophies back legally with ability you know, like we've seen with uh, lions and elephants, specifically uh, rhinos, obviously in Africa, uh, polar bears in Canada. Um, does this affect that that legislation? That, as so
4: so, so th- this does not affect that issue okay. one way or the other. Okay. So, so it it's it simply removes the regulatory barriers that 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 allow. Texans and allow people across the United States to to breed species that are threatened globally and to expand their populations. And, and It's a good example of how you can have a win-win that 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 is common sense and good for conservation, good for the environment at the same time. That 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 respects the rights of hunters and allows uh, allows hunters and fishermen to to enjoy enjoy the great outdoors and and doing both at the same time. Uh, really should should be something that, that that's a win-win for everybody.
3: Well, and I did want to ask that question, though, about those trophies, because, you know, as we've seen <laughs> with uh, with modern times and as far as poaching goes, if you want to increase poaching, by all means, make it illegal to sell ivory. Uh, you just, I mean, and then burn all that and have these widespread ivory bands where they burn tons upon tons of ivory. Uh, all you're doing is incentivizing poachers to go out and kill more. So uh, I don't know. Maybe there's something in the future we could do to work on that
4: an international problem. So. You, you know, there's no doubt that the best way to, to increase a population, the best way to increase a resource uh, is to protect property rights in that, so, so that when you protect property rights, you see that landowners engage in conservation, they engage in managing the population, and, and it ends up being better for the population. If, if you take away the property rights, uh, suddenly the incentives for the landowners uh, – are dramatically diminished, and it ends up, uh, you know, it's one of the surest ways to actually drive a population extinct is, is, is remove, uh, remove the property rights and, and the financial incentives uh, for, for the landowners uh, to expand that population.
3: Yes, and within the hunting community, we have this saying, if it pays, it stays. And it's, a lot of people don't like to think about putting a dollar value on an animal's head, but at the end of the day, that's what's keeping them on the planet and uh, that's what funds conservation. So
4: uh, uh, undoubtedly, and 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 the more there are incentives to to grow and expand animal populations, the better it is for preserving the the biodiversity on on the planet. Yes, sir,
3: uh, Senator. What is your take on Utah Senator Mike Lee's proposal to transfer all federally owned land to state control?
4: Uh, I am a, a a strong supporter of that proposition. Uh, y- you know, you look at many of the states, particularly in the West. Uh, where uh, a majority of the state uh, is 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 owned by the federal government, uh, you know. Thankfully, in Texas, just two percent of the, of the land right. in Texas is is federal land, and and I've only sort of joked that that we Texans think that's two percent too much. Uh, <laughs> You know, I think land can be perfectly well managed by by states or in private hands. There's no reason for the federal government to be the largest landowner in many Western states, and 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 it and it can be counterproductive. It's it's the same. Really, the same principle we were saying before about if if they're property rights and incentives, then the, then that land is going to be managed in a way that that, that that that's most productive, and that allows people to use it. I mean, one of the things we've seen on a lot of these federal lands is is particularly if you've got a democratic administration, something like the Obama administration, that that, that you see Washington bureaucrats trying to shut off the access. Uh, of Americans to using that land, shut off hunters, shut off fishermen, shut off the ability to I- enjoy the land. you know we need to preserve our federal parks, we need to preserve our military bases and our post offices, but there 's no reason just to own millions and millions of acres and 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 for the federal government, effectively to block Americans from from enjoying the abundant natural resources we have in this country.
3: Have you heard of backcountry hunters and anglers? I guess they're they're probably one of the biggest oppositions to Senator Lee's proposal. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them or not.
4: I, I, I'm not not familiar with it with that particular group. So so tell me about their concerns.
3: Oh, the, I, their main concern is just access. You know, um, I think there's this there's a misconception. I think it's on both sides of right now. They think they have all this access. Um, and if we were to transfer it to state control, the states, maybe they sell it off to the private sector, then it'll just become like, I guess that's the main drawback for Texas. Yes. I, I like that. We have so much privately owned land, but the drawback is then you've got to go pay for a deer lease instead of having a, a national forest where you just have access to it. So I think that's their concern.
4: Well, and, and I think at the end of the day, there there can be a combination. Some states might choose to have, have more state control. Some some states might choose to have it in private hands. I think it works pretty well in Texas having it in private hands. Last time I checked, it is not hard to find a place to go hunting or fishing in the state of Texas. I, and and uh, uh, we seem to manage to do that just fine without the federal government coming in and owning half our state. Yes, sir.
3: Um, let's talk about the upcoming election. Um, Beto O'Rourke. I don't. I mean, really, his name is Robert Francis O'Rourke, so he's not uh, by he's not Hispanic descent by you know any means. Um, but fundamentally, what is your biggest issue with his running flat po- uh, running platform as we head into a, an election year?
4: Well, the race we have here in Texas presents, I think, the starkest divide. Uh, uh, of any race in the country between the, the, the records of the two candidates and, and between the, the positions they're supporting. you know Typically, uh, a Democrat running in Texas in a general election at, at least pretends to run to the middle, pretends to be, be moderate. Mm-hmm. Uh, Congressman O'Rourke is not doing that. He, he is running hard, hard left. He, he's running like Bernie Sanders. So on taxes, he voted against the big tax cut we just passed, and, and he's promising to raise your taxes. On regulations, he wants to bring back uh, the Obama-era regulations that that, that hammered Texas, that that, that were crushing to jobs, that hammered oil and gas, that hammered farmers and ranchers. Uh, On health care, he supports Obamacare, and he wants to expand it to full-on socialized medicine. Uh, On the Second Amendment, uh, Congressman O'Rourke has tweeted out how proud he is to have an F rating from the NRA. I got. Now I got to tell you, Cable. I, I, I promptly retweeted him. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I said, "Look, elections are about choices, and and if you want a big government, gun grabbing liberal, well, the Democrats have just given you one."
3: I'm going to go grab that tweet and put it up all over my social platforms. Uh, no doubt.
4: Uh, look on on immigration, he supports sanctuary cities, and he has said he is quote open to abolishing ICE, abolishing the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. Hmm. That is radical and extreme, and it's out of step with a vast majority of Texans. And he's the only Democratic Senate candidate in the country, nominee, who has come out explicitly for impeaching President Trump. And, and, and that's a radical and extreme view. He's raising tens of millions of dollars from Hollywood liberals and liberals all over the country. But those views don't remotely reflect the views of the vast majority of Texans. Right. Yeah, there's no
3: doubt. I mean, you're you're speaking at the NRA convention in Dallas. I mean, with President Trump, you had the honor of of speaking in front of the largest group of pro Second Amendment Americans that assembles each year, uh, and he's over there uh, <laughs> bragging about
4: an, an F rating from the NRA. Uh, he, I, I am proud I, to stand with with. Uh, with gun owners, with with Texans who exercise our Second Amendment rights, I have been a vigorous defender of the Second Amendment uh, for for my entire my, my entire life, and and that uh, the contrast, Congressman O'Rourke, uh, has you know publicly come out for for, for banning. Uh, many of the most popular firearms that, 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 that Texans use today, and, and that's irresponsible and it's wrong. And but, but it's very, very popular. You know, there's a reason uh, Rosie O'Donnell and Al Franken and Chelsea Handler are all supporting Congressman O'Rourke's campaign because they uh, despise the Second Amendment and, and they want to see politicians in office who, who will come after our guns. And that, that's not Texas. That's not who we are.
3: Well, last question. Um, and it's not hard to find this photo of uh, Congressman O'Rourke, but are there any early pictures of you in a dress floating around the internet that are going to come out? Because that was kind of disturbing to see him in a dress.
5: <laughs>
4: you know, I, I I feel confident there are not. There there, there may be some, some awkward uh, – uh, high school class pictures, but probably the worst I ever had was 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 maybe uh, braces and even glasses at some point. As a, uh, but 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 no, I I I avoided that particular all wardrobe right. choice. No ladyboy pictures for you. I like it. Okay.
3: <laughs> well, Senator, it's always great visiting with you. Thanks for coming on and and talking about the uh, SAVES Act with us. And obviously, you have my endorsement, and uh, I hope all of our listeners will will do the same and we'll get you reelected here.
4: Fantastic. That, that, thank you, Cable. I very much appreciate it. Thank you for, for, for standing up for our Second Amendment rights and, and for the rights of hunters and fishermen each and every day. All right. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: There he goes, Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Makes me feel like singing the Star Spangled Banner. I'm not going to lie. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't agree with everything that Senator Cruz says, specifically on the public land thing. Um, my heart Is with backcountry hunters and anglers. Yeah, Dex is great. And, uh, you know, we're a different animal, like the senator alluded to, 98% privately owned. I don't necessarily think that's a good thing Uh, because, you know, I have a deer lease that I have to pay, what, $2,500, $3,000 to be on, where I can go to New Mexico next week, for example, and hunt on literally millions of acres for $600 with a chance to harvest a, a bull elk. And and I can go there for free if I just want to backpack or maybe pay $20 for a three-day out-of-state fishing license. I mean, you get the point. Uh, it's very expensive to hunt in Texas. And so um, I think there's a little, uh, maybe a little confusion on that aspect. Now, there are public land opportunities, and there's certainly plenty of fishing opportunities. Uh, but on the hunting side, I just don't. Uh, I don't. I don't like that. I don't like that people have to pay that much money. For me personally, I can afford it. Uh, it's a business expense. I write it off, for goodness sakes. But uh, there's a lot of folks out there who would love to be able to go whitetail hunting, uh, but don't have access. So, anyway, uh, that being said, no politician is going to have an agenda that I 100% agree with. Just like you guys and gals, we all take issue with something that they've endorsed. And, you know, it is what it is. I still love Ted, and he's got my vote. I I think he is great for Texas and great for the Second Amendment. And, uh, and I'm proud to vote for him. So uh, we just need to work on that one thing. <laughs> uh, that segment of the show was proudly brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. (laughs) Yeah, funny tie-in here. You know, land is the one thing they're not making any more of, right? Especially in Texas, but we all want it. And Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own piece of Texas for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you. So if you're in the market uh, to buy that recreational, that hunting, or just that weekend getaway property, get out of the big city, let Lone Star Ag Credit help you out and you can find them at at lonestaradcredit.com. Up next, we're going to talk some whitetails. Everyone has beaten it into our brains that we do our controlled burns during the non-growing season. Well, biologist Will Mosley of the Noble Research Institute in Oklahoma has a different take on that. He's got stats to back it up. He joins us next on the Lone Star Outdoors show. Now I'm the lucky one. I'll always be the lucky one long as you are close to me like a gambling man who always holds a hand three curl outfitters is now offering guided north texas quail hunts just 30 minutes south of dfw if you're looking for a quality quail hunt close to home planning a company outing or just looking for a place to tune up your dogs you need to give them a call. Hunts are $250 a hunter for a half day hunt. That includes 15 birds. And you can add extra birds for $8 a piece if you want to give your bird dog just a little more run. You're welcome to bring your own dogs. Otherwise, the guide and dog fee is 150 a day for your entire group. That's not per person. Go to 3curl.com or call 214 641 8097 to book your hunt today.
5: Howdy folks,
4: I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's, once again, the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Well, Cable, there's no better way
2: to cool off than fishing with Captain Len. The speckled trout run is so hot, and the prices are not. We're also catching redfish, black drum, flounder, and even snapper. All your gear is provided, fish cleaned, and the whole ball of wax. All you need is a camera and a smile. Just ask Cable.
0: And that's right. Captain Lynn is a longtime friend of our show. He fishes all the way from Corpus Christi Bay up to Baffin. Visit CaptainLynn'sFishing.com today. Book your trip and tell him you heard about it here for special raids.
4: We can run, but we can't hide. And you asked me to forgive. You said let's just go on and live like it's
0: my choice to make. Green's the name of that one there from Cody West bringing us back on the Lone Star oh, Outdoor Show powered by baby. Dallas Safari Club. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you for being here today as we're about to talk some habitat management with our white-tailed deer in mind. But before we start burning stuff, this segment is brought to you by Sendero Seed Company. They've got anything and everything you need to keep a happy and healthy whitetail herd. That's right. All your planting needs, you can find it at Sendero Seed Company. They've even got the Dr. Deer-backed buck forage oat, Sendero Seed Company, for all your planting needs. All right. uh, Well, let's bring on our next guest. He is a biologist with the Noble Research Center. Uh, I recently came across a piece that he had written. Found it fascinating. I think y'all will as well. It's my pleasure to welcome Will Mosley
5: to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It is my pleasure. Um, First
3: of all, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the Noble Research Institute.
5: So I'm a wildlife and fisheries consultant here at Noble, and uh, basically that means I get to help producers, land managers, uh, manage their properties for wildlife and fisheries goals. So whether that be anything from deer management, uh, largemouth bass management, hummingbirds, uh, or anything in between. And so we get to work one-on-one with those agricultural producers to help them uh, manage their, their goals for wildlife.
3: Okay, so this is all basically ag properties that also want to focus on wildlife.
5: Yes, it doesn't. Yes, absolutely. It's uh, ag properties that want to focus on wildlife, or properties that are focused solely on uh, managing for wildlife.
3: Okay, okay, and that's what the Noble Research Institute um, is all about, I guess. Tell tell me about the institute, because I'm really, you know, I'm I'm in in Texas. You're not far from me, and actually, one of my deer leases is up in Atoka, Oklahoma. So great. uh, Yeah, I spend quite a bit of time up there, but I I hadn't uh, heard of the Noble Research Institute until recently.
5: Okay, yeah. So Noble uh, Research Institute is our, our mission is to deliver solutions to great agricultural challenges, and I'm in the producer relations group, and so we all work with our uh, producers in this region to help them manage. And specifically, on wildlife, we also have livestock consultants and ag ag economics consultants and horticulture, soils and crops, pasture and range. Anything that we feel ag producers in our region can benefit from, uh, we also have. Um, Lots of different people looking at research from very basic science, uh, looking at um, developing better plants all the way out in the field to testing those plants, how they integrate into our ecosystem and a systems approach to agriculture. So everything kind of in between to take from the laboratory out to the field, we try try to accomplish.
3: Okay. So if one goes to your website and types in the word burn into the search queue, I mean, a litany of articles on prescribed burns appear. I mean, some as far back as like the 90s, uh, early 90s even I was looking at. Uh, But it looks like there's just a vast resource of, of, you know, published pieces on prescribed burns. And that's what I want to talk about today. Um, Because, you know, when you talk about prescribed burns, we're all basically told, you know, right before early spring, you know, is the best time to to go in there and burn off, I guess, what the winter uh, stuff that died in the winter, that, that, that top layer of vegetation, and then you know, v- revitalize the soil, and hopefully the growing season will be even better. Um, I mean, that typically when we're supposed to do it.
5: That's kind of been the traditional burn season for our area. A lot of people, that kind of December to March time frame, and, and usually when we're managing, or when most people are managing to increase, Uh, forage production for livestock usually burn in that february march time frame Mm -hmm. you get a big flush of grasses there in the early spring and they can graze it um the the problem with that is from a from a manager trying to implement prescribed burn usually some of our most dry volatile times from a weather standpoint is in that january to march time frame so it makes it difficult To get in and get our burns done, and what happens is we end up pushing them off to the next year and pushing them off to the next year, and then you turn around. The next thing is what you see driving around our areas: lots of cedar, lots of brush, lots of encroachment. And so we've almost uh, waited too long to burn. So we're we're trying to maybe get people to look at burning at different times a year instead of focusing on three or four months of the year. Focus on all 12 months of the year, and if you've got good conditions to burn, uh, then implement that fire when you can. Okay.
3: Well, yeah, and it seems like a good time to burn would be when everything's wet, obviously, or, you know, whether you're going to be able to control the fire more effectively. And that would be like right in the middle of growing season, which is this article I was reading that you published recently, um, you know, late spring, early summer,
5: so you know when we do burn in the growing season here, which is you know from April through October for our our part of the world, um, usually things are growing, which means there's green vegetation with moisture in it Um, usually our winds are lighter usually our relative humidities are higher compared to the dormant season and so usually it is a safer time to burn because the fire moves much slower Uh, the fire uh, is less intense from a flame length and flame spread um and and if we do get spot fires they they're much easier to control cuz you can walk over and quickly put them out cuz they are slower moving um and so burning when there is moisture uh is for, is safer from a uh fire application uh aspect absolutely uh-huh
3: but that's not the only reason why you've published this piece i mean there's a lot more that goes into it uh, concerning the crude protein load that you know is a byproduct so after you go in and do these growing season burns, your research, you know, suggests that you're actually going to get more crude protein out of those plants that, that do come up after the burn.
5: Right. So, so typically when... Which for, for
3: whitetail deer is awesome.
5: <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. And so typically for our uh, woody plants in, in the cross timbers, when they first emerge in April, May, they have a, a relatively high crude protein levels. And as the summer Goes on, they start dropping in crude protein levels. Um, and over time, those protein, crude protein levels uh, are not meeting the nutritional needs of white-tailed deer. So, a lot of times, what you see is deer switching their diets or they'll rely heavily on Forbes, broadleaf herbaceous plants. Um, and so, we wanted to look at to see how does burning in the growing season, right in the middle, you know, in July, what is the response? after that growing season are those plants that come back, or they have higher quality. And what we found was we looked at five different species. We looked at um, sand plum, uh, poison ivy, greenbrier, sumac, and dogwood. Those are five important plants in the cross-timbers ecoregion. Um, and what we found all wow, of them poison like,
3: ivy and sumac, two of my least y- favorite plants.
5: <laughs> well, if, if you're interested in deer, those are very important plants uh, uh, to be interested in. So. <laughs> now, the deer
3: actually eat those plants.
5: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They uh, they are um, important. Good God,
3: learn something new every day. I'm trying like hell to avoid them. White-tailed deer are like, where is that poison ivy? I need to give me some of that.
5: Well, and, and if if you're highly allergic to poison ivy, you know, if you're, if you're cleaning the deer and if you, you know, cut open the stomach, then you've got to be careful because a lot of times it has poison ivy uh, in their stomach. So that's just one thing to be careful of.
3: Huh? You know yeah, what I want to like do to poison ivy right. and poison sumac? I want to burn it with fire.
5: <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Makes it more palatable and more nutritious. Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. So but, anyway, so, sorry to get you off the rails there, but uh, keep no, going. No, it's
5: fine. No. So what we found was, you know, we saw that tradition, that, that typical trend uh, that the crude protein levels declined over the summer, but when we burned all of those species except for dogwood, had a spike in crude protein levels for when the they came back. Year. When they came back, yeah. when, they, when they re-sprouted, they came back and actually Greenbrier came back at about 27% crude protein in August, when the area that was not burned only had uh, about 9% crude protein. Huh. So that's a pretty significant jump in crude protein levels. And so now what we're doing is for providing, going into the fall, uh, late summer into fall, we're providing a very high level of nutrition on our landscape by doing that summer burn.
3: Okay, okay. Uh, That's fascinating. Wow. Okay. And I mean, and and that's essential because I mean, this is when these bucks are putting on their, their headgear. Uh, You know, so if you're trying to grow nice deer, think about that, you're going to be giving them more crude protein through these burns, and maybe you're not going to have to spend so much money on, you know, supplementing with protein. So,
5: Oh yeah, yeah. You hit it absolutely. You know, all about it's a, uh, for antler growth, a, a buck's requirements is about 16% crude protein, and uh, so um, let's see, of the four species that we looked at. All of them but one um, were above 16% cro- p- crude protein and the other one was about 14% crude protein after a burn. And so you're spiking those nutritional levels so all the deer can get everything they need uh, for their nu- nutritional requirements. And so by using these management techniques through fire, you know proper grazing, things like that to manage our habitat, um, there's, ad- there's no need for supplemental protein or supplemental feed because we're providing everything they can get on the landscape at a much lower cost. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this: in,
3: in your opinion, what month of the year is the most important for bucks, as you know they're in their own growing season and, and growing this, this velvet?
5: Well, I think you know most of our most of our plants are going to be a high level of nutrition uh, coming out of the dormancy in April and May, and so that's not a, it's usually not a limiting time then. Um, If we're wanting to burn specifically for antler growth, uh, probably sometime in that middle of, uh, summer, you kind of when you get into that July time frame, it's Mm -hmm. probably going to be good. But really, if we're burning little bits, every month or every couple weeks, we're always keeping something freshly burned. So burn different areas every couple weeks uh, on the property. And so you've always got something out there really nutritious, really good, really available for them uh, so they can pick and choose and make sure they get what they need.
3: So the average person out there listening, we're talking about these prescribed burns and encouraging them to do them. But I wouldn't advise someone that's never done it to just go out there and start burning things. Um, who should you who should you reach out to if you are interested in a prescribed burn on your property?
5: I agree 100% with that. You know, it's doing a prescribed burn is kind of like driving, driving a car. You know, you can get out there and read all the books about how to drive a car and traffic laws and things like that, but you really don't learn how to drive a car until you sit behind a wheel and drive that vehicle. And the same thing about prescribed burning, we can read all the publications about safety and weather and all these things, but you really got to experience it. Um, and so there's lots of different resources for our, for, um, our land managers. No, you know, Noble uh, Research Institute, we offer um, usually two burn workshops every single year um, to, to teach producers how to learn. We actually get out and do – we did one last week where we did two burns, and we put a drip torch in people's hands, we gave them a sprayer in their hands, and they actually implemented the burn with us. Um, your local Natural Resources Conservation Service the (NRCS) there's an office in every county. They're a good resource to learn about burning. Your local um, extension, so OSU Extension or AgriLife Extension office does lots of prescribed burning, as well as textbooks Parks and Wildlife, yeah, in Oklahoma say. Department of Wildlife Conservation. All really good resources and all really good proponents of prescribed burning.
3: I imagine they'd come out like and kind of hold your hand and walk you through that as far as our, you know our state wildlife agencies for. The first time I, I don't think they want
2: to
5: see a fire uh,
3: get out of control as a result of a novice, uh, you know, taking a, taking a little liberty with his torch.
5: Absolutely. You know, there's, there are folks on staff at Tex Parks and Wildlife that assist uh, with prescribed burning. And so calling your local biologist is the first step on starting that conversation on, on trying to get fire implemented in your property. Well, hey, well, I certainly
3: enjoyed the conversation. It's been uh, interesting. And, and like I said, something um, that I told you off there was out of the box that we're told, you know, burn, a, burn early March, you know, December through March, like you said. And, and so to hear someone talking about the benefits of actually burning during the growing season uh, was, uh, was, was fascinating to me and, and eye-opening. So I, I certainly appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your research with us today.
5: You're welcome. I mean, bottom line is the plants that where we live evolved under fire and they they burned every year, every day of the year throughout history. And so our plants need fire. And so let's kind of open up our calendars a little bit to make sure we get fire on the ground and and we're managing our lands for good, proper stewardship.
3: Uh, If folks want to check out any more of the articles that say you've written or like I said, there's a litany of uh, prescribed burn literature on the uh, Noble website. What is the uh, what is the website?
5: Our website is noble.org. That's N-O-B-L-E dot Perfect. Well, Will,
3: thanks a lot, man. I hope you have a, a great season, and I'm sure we'll do it again sometime down the road. All
5: right. Sounds great. Thanks for having me on.
0: All right. Some outside-the-box stuff on prescribed burns with Will Mosley of the Noble Research Institute. That segment of the presentation, by the way, was proudly brought to you by Rudy's True Texas Style Barbecue, where you can stop in for breakfast, lunch, or dinner and enjoy Rudy's True Texas Style Barbecue. Uh, man, just looking at the clock here. We've got to go, got to get out of here. Flat out of time. Thanks to all of our guests today, Will, as well as Senator Ted Cruz and Tom Mormon of Ducks Unlimited. We will do it again, same time, same place, next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, you guys and gals have a great Dove opener. We'll see you next week.